0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The Puritans developed for us, <clears throat> didn't create but developed, an important category, I've mentioned it at least in passing before, called Practical Atheism. The title of the sermon, by the way, is How to Avoid That. Uh, the main idea refers to non-Christians uh, who profess to believe in God, and perhaps even the Bible as the Word of God, but who actually live as if God is not real and the Word is not true. They are not confessional atheists, that is, they claim to believe in God, but they are practical or functional atheists. They don't live as if there is one. So the Puritans got this idea, or at least developed this idea, from passages like Romans 1.21, in which the Apostle Paul laments the fact that there are some, maybe many, among him and in his day who, and here's what he says, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew that there was one, which all people do, he said in that same context, but they did not honor him as God. They didn't live in light of the fact that he is God and give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their their thoughts became worthless because they weren't rooted in God. They functioned as atheists. Okay, so the thing is, though, practical atheism is not something that's unique to non-Christians, Stephen Charnock. Which, if you wanna, if you wanna, if you wanna dive deeper into something than you're probably used to diving, uh, I fumbled that all up. If you, if you wanna peel back more layers than you're used to peeling back on something, uh, pick up his book. You can get it free online. If you've ever heard of Monergism.com, it's free there. You can get the PDF or or, or you can, it's still in print, I think, but the book is called The Existence and Attributes of God. And chapter two is dedicated almost entirely to practical atheism. And so here, here's the thing. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> what does it look like in the life of a Christian? In, in this, in this book, he notes, Turnick notes that all sin in all people is the result of at least temporary practical atheism. Every time we sin, it is, in effect, practical atheism. What does that mean? Uh, it, we're acting, when we sin, like God doesn't exist, at least for that moment. If you believed in all that God was at every given moment, or any given moment, you would not talkly, talk harshly to your wife, or exasperate your kids, or lie to your boss, or watch garbage on the television, or the internet, or fudge your taxes, or demean your employees, or... Gossip about your friends. You never would. And in the moment that you do, you are practically an atheist. You might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with James 5, 13 to 18? That's a good question. In it, in this passage for this morning, James mentions Christians who are suffering, who are cheerful, and who are sick. And at its very heart, what he's after, he uses a lot of words, and we're going to see in a little bit, He says some things that have caused a decent amount of controversy in the church over the years. But at its very heart, these few verses are simply this. They're a call to acknowledge God's sovereignty over each of those things and to do so primarily through prayer. The opposite of practical atheism. Practical atheism creeps into all of us when, instead of doing that, instead of seeing all of those things In light of who God is and what He's doing and what He's promised, turning to Him in prayer in light of that, we think mainly and even sometimes merely in worldly terms. So, so let me sort of give you an overview quick and then I'm going to pray. When we suffer, so suffering, cheerfulness, sickness, when we suffer, instead of prayerfully resting on God's promises, we often grow bitter and despondent instead. When we are cheerful, Instead of celebrating it in song, a song of thanksgiving to God, acknowledging that he is the giver of all good things, we tend to treat that thing, whatever it is that made us cheerful, as an end in itself. And we're sick. Instead of hopefully soliciting the prayers of the saints as God has called us to, in full assurance that in mysterious ways God works through them, we typically lament in despair. You should see me when I get the sniffles. What we have here, therefore, is a defense against and a godly alternative to practical atheism, and at least these three ways, and with that, it opens the door to fight off and hold back practical atheism in the rest of our lives as well. So let's pray that God would help us to hear and do what James commands, and that all of our practical atheism would be driven away this morning. God, thank you for, uh, as Mike and John and Matt, and others have taught uh, it for several months now in Berea on church history and the importance of learning from it, being humbled by the fact that we're not unique in the history of your plan or in your plan that there's nothing new under the sun on top of that helped us to see that understanding what the church has wrestled with over the years will Help prevent us from wrestling with the same things and inform us when we do. And so with that, we thank you for this category that others have created and, and we are able to build upon this morning in the way of practical atheism. God, that's offensive to you. It dishonors you. And, and so we don't, we don't want that. We don't want to live like practical atheists. Those those of us who are calling on the name of the Lord want to do that in every moment of every day for your glory and our good and the good of the whole world. And so through these words of James, help us to see and find where that is the case in us, that we're functioning like atheists, that we might instead function in fullness of faith. Let this be a help to us. God, open our hearts to your word. Wherever there are hearts that are hard or cold or numb or guarded, let them fly open this morning to your word. Cause, cause your spirit to pierce us. If if there's anyone here is in kind of the rut of hearing sermons or sitting under your word without feeling its impact, without feeling its transforming power, would you open their hearts, soften their hearts this morning to receive your word and all of its goodness, all of its conviction, all of its encouragement, all of its wisdom, all of its life all of its hope god let us be expectant that your spirit will be pleased to work through your word in us this morning we pray this in jesus name amen so six verses three questions the first two questions get half a verse each one verse total and the third question gets the the last five verses in this passage indicating that there's something unique about not being a practical atheist in sickness. But that's how James structured this passage. All of them, all of them, here's the thing. If you're going to write something down, this is it right here. All of them point to the same basic principle. And here it is. You want to hold off, drive out, keep away, kill practical atheism? Here's the key. In all situations, every single one, no. And in this case, especially suffering Cheerfulness and sickness. Know this. Here it is. God is a good God over every suffering, every cheerfulness, every sickness, every everything. God is a good God over everything. And prayer is the most appropriate way to acknowledge that. That's, you can, you can get that and live in light of that. There will be no practical atheism in your life. Practically living in light of that principle makes all the difference every moment of every day. So let's consider each, each of those three questions and each of James's prescribed responses to them as we strive to live thoroughly theistic, godly, Christ-following lives. So here's the first question. Is anyone among you suffering? Is there any suffering among you? The word translated suffering tri- typically refers to persecution, but it's also used in much broader terms as well to refer to any type of hardship. Are any of you going? Are, are any of you being persecuted for your faith in Christ? Or, or more broadly, are any of you experiencing any type of hardship? We know that James already knows the answer to that question. If you've read any of the previous chapters in James, you know he knows. He knew that there was suffering among them—significant, serious, and prolonged suffering. His intention was to give advice, not gain information, in asking this question. A good paraphrase then would be something like James saying to his readers, Whenever you find yourself suffering, hear this. All right, so what's he gonna say? What's his prescribed answer? What's the opposite of practical theism or or practical atheism? Before we see that, ask yourself, do this, this is a good practice. Pause and consider what do you do? when suffering comes into your life. So again, as I've asked you to do before, draw to mind some particular suffering. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's this morning. Maybe it's recent. But draw to mind what you do when you suffer. So think of a real experience, suffering experience you've had. What did you do? What happened in your head? How did you think? What happened in your heart? What did you feel? What happened in your life? How did How did you respond to it? Imagine some ache or pain that just won't let up. Imagine your employer instituting a policy that violates your conscience. Imagine being being diagnosed with some type of degenerative disease. Imagine being in a really hard marriage. Imagine having a child who renounces their faith in Christ when they're older. James is about to tell us what we should do in any of those situations when the suffering comes with it. But it's good for us to first settle on what we do do. <laughs> what do you do? What have you done? What are you likely to do? What is your impulse when suffering comes your way? And I say that knowing that some of you don't have to imagine because you're in it right now. And so James, James is going to tell us how, how, how to live in a manner pleasing to God. As I mentioned in the introduction though, again, more often than not, more often than we'd probably like to admit at least, the answer is that we forget when suffering comes our way, we forget that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, including this particular suffering. We forget that God uses every evil, even the sinful choices of Others, even, our sinful choices. If our hope is in Jesus, God uses as an instrument for greater good. We forget that the cross and the empty tomb are a perfect guarantee that perfect justice is certain forever. We forget these things. In other words, tragically, our response to suffering is often to act like practical atheists. Whenever our first thought and greatest hope. Suffering just came your way right now. Whenever your first thought and greatest hope is in anything other than God and his glorious promises of sufficient grace, unwavering fellowship with you through it, sanctifying work. It's an instrument for sanctifying you and greatest good. We're practically atheists. That's what James wants us to get. Well, here's the thing, Grace. Until Jesus returns, we're always going to struggle with this. Every one of us, we're always going to struggle with practical atheism. Our sin, our flesh, and the devil all conspire to turn our hearts and minds away from God when suffering comes our way. It's one of his favorite tools to do that. In acknowledgment of this and as a means to help us in this, this is a normal experience James wants to help under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He instructed his readers what it looks like to respond rightly. God's people avoid practical atheism and honor God in our suffering, James wrote, when we respond to it by turning to him in simple prayer. James didn't elaborate on the content or even the nature of the prayer, but his main point is one of disposition. His main point is that our disposition in suffering is to turn to God, who we know, as I prayed this morning out of the psalm, our fighter verse, is a sufficient refuge, is a perfect refuge, that in the shadow of his wings alone is perfect peace. And so where else would we go? Where else would we turn if we're thinking rightly? And so we pray, God, make me strong enough to endure this in faith. Whatever this is, God, strengthen me for this. Let me honor you in this. As some have said, let me not waste this suffering. It's an opportunity to show your glory. Give me wisdom. God, give me wisdom to know how to honor you in every moment of this. I don't feel sufficient. I don't, I don't feel like I understand what I should do. Fill me with that knowledge. Surround me with people who have that, that they could give me good counsel through this. Make me strong enough. Make me wise enough. God, help me to experience your presence through this. If I know you are with me, I can do this. God, help me to know you're with me. You are. Help me to experience that. That's sufficient. And of course, God, please deliver me from this suffering. Please give me relief from this, but at the same time, let me live through it as though deliverance is Christ, but death is gain. God, help me in these ways. That's what James is telling us. That's what it looks like to not be practically an atheist. The practical atheist response to suffering is to think only in terms of the pain and how to get out of it as quickly as we can. And to be miserable until that happens. The response of the faithful, sanct- the fully sanctified follower of Jesus is to hope wholly in the promises of God and walk entirely in a peace that surpasses understanding no matter what happens. Well, because we always fall somewhere in between those two <laughs> on earth, we pray. Number two, is anyone cheerful? Right? What a... I don't know what you thought he might go to next, but I didn't imagine him going uh, suffering here, sickness here. What would you think would be in the middle of that? I wouldn't have picked cheerfulness, but there we are. So what does practical atheism look like when we're cheerful and how do we avoid it? Think again. When was the last time you were really happy? Go ahead and, go ahead and draw it to mind. You just really laughed. You, your, your face, like if someone would have seen you without knowing what was going on, they could tell by your face. You're filled with joy. Some of you have beamed with pride recently, telling me about some of the accomplishments of your kids. I love that. Chris, I don't know if she's here, but she just got to 100% support. It was so easy to see on her face what joy that was. Uh, Jack's in the back. Has he shown any of you his pride and joy? Raise raise your hand if you've seen Jack's pride and Oh, my goodness. Okay, Jack, he probably has it here. Ask him to see his pride and joy later. If you know Jack, you know you're gonna be disappointed. <laughs> two, two, two different Lukes. Two different Lukes. We got a pair of Lukes here that, that shared with me recently that their employers were especially generous. Jerry, when the Together for Good team, there's Together for Good deals all, all the time with, with women in crisis. And when the Together for Good people call Grace Church, they know that Grace Church is gonna respond in remarkable ways. And to see that on Jerry's face when when you all pull together to help a mom who's struggling, it's it's pretty awesome. It's been my privilege to have many of you share the objects of your cheerfulness with me as your friend and your pastor. So I know it's out there. I know that cheerfulness is not alien to Grace Church. Well, the crucial question for all of us that James is driving at here is, what do we do when that kind of cheerfulness comes? It's a crucial question, because just as we can be practical atheists when life is hard, we can be practical atheists when life is good. Was there any practical atheism? I I just named some really specific grace, church-oriented cheerfulnesses. Was there any practical atheism in any of those things? And if so, what would it have looked like? Let me me tell you what it might have looked like. Practical atheism delights in the kids' accomplishments apart from an overwhelming sense of God as the giver of whatever strengths or gifts these kids have. Practical atheism, for Christa, celebrates 100% support merely as a chance to be done begging y'all for money or as a chance to finally just get over there and be done with this. That's what practical atheism looks like. Practical atheism laughs at Jack's Jokes without the thought of the fact that laughter is a gift from God. It's his reminder of his pleasure in his children. When we laugh, it's meant to draw our minds to God that he delights in us. Practical atheism delights in a generous raise from a non-Christian employer simply as a means to maintain a comfortable lifestyle rather than as a unique or as an unlikely expression of God's common grace. Practical atheism produces cheerfulness merely in the physical and psychological help that Together for Good provides for hurting moms and kids rather than first and most the beautiful reminder it is of the spiritual help that God offers us in Jesus. Why did Jesus heal the sick to show that He had the power to forgive sins? That's what practical atheism can look like in our cheerfulness. In short, Practical atheism is cheerful and something in and of itself, while godly cheerfulness always recognizes God as the only giver of good gifts. Practical atheism sings praise to the object of our cheerfulness only, while godly cheerfulness results in vertical praise, vertical song, vertical singing first, and horizontal praise only second. That's what James meant then when he said, Are any of you cheerful? Are any of you rejoicing in something? Let them sing praise. Praise to God. Practical theism, it is godliness, therefore finds all cheerfulness rooted first and most in the unwavering belief that every good and perfect gift comes from God, and it therefore responds to every blessing, every object of joy, every happiness in song of thanks. thanksgiving. Get your playlist ready. <laughs> get, it, get it. Get it on your phone ready to go so that as God's kindness comes upon you, you just hit play and sing like a weirdo. All right, lastly then, is anyone sick? Any you suffering? Any of you cheerful? Is anyone sick? This involves, of course, a more particular form of suffering. And as we all know, sickness is often, you know this, Grace, just think about this. Think about this with your kids. Think about this with yourself. Sickness is often one of the most practical, atheism-tempting experiences we can have. This particular form of suffering tempts us towards practical atheism more than almost anything else. It is for that reason that James spent more time on this than any of the rest. So one more time, ask yourself. Imagine getting sick. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a, you know what I really, I really don't like is when the nail does that thing where it just hurts on the side. Let I me mean, you know what that is. Is that an ingrown nail or something? I mean, can you imagine the suffering that that is for me. And I just feel like, Jesus, I understand. I understand what you went through when my nails. I'm being silly, of course, but you all do that too. You're pretty pretty sad at that, just like I am. What's your first impulse when you get sick? Practical atheism causes you to think mainly and sometimes only in terms of diagnosis, prognosis, and healing. That's what practical atheism does. It produces an entirely earthly view of those things. It can't think of much beyond doctors, medicine, and surgery. Of course, all those things can and and often should be used as a means of God's grace. But by themselves, they fail to recognize that both sickness and healing are entirely in God's hands. Even as both, God's word tells us, are means of God's grace. Our sickness and our health belongs to God, and he uses both for his purposes. Sickness is God's grace and that it humbles us. It reveals our idols. It causes us to feel what's always true, namely that we're finite and dependent upon God. And healing, healing is God's grace too if he chooses to give it. That it puts the power of God on display. It provides a picture of the greater spiritual healing that he offers in Christ. And it gives us an opportunity to praise God in specific ways for specific kindnesses. For all those reasons, James James told his readers that their first impulse at the first sniffle ought to be to acknowledge God's sovereignty over this. I don't know where this is going, God. I remember sitting at Subway with Bruce and Mike and asking them, "Does does does the temperature seem funny to you? To you guys, the temperature seems funny to me right now. I feel really cold. Is is it super cold in here? They looked at me, I didn't know. I said, "I, I think I need to leave. I got in my car, by God's grace, it has heated seats, and had the heat literally cranked as high as it could go, pulled into my driveway, and fell asleep for about an hour because I was afraid to get out into the cold and lose this warmth. And then I went in bed and slept for about 24 straight hours. Didn't eat, didn't wake up. I had, I had the flu. But at the first sign of this, guys, does it seem cold in here? Our first, my first thought needs, needs to go vertical. My first thought needs to look up. James told his readers that their first impulse, that the first sense of it's a little too cold or tickly nose or some part of your body not functioning the way you know it should needs to be to acknowledge God's sovereignty over that. And for, That reason, our first response is to pray every time and solicit the prayers of the saints and especially the elders of the church. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed in your sickness. The prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working, which is actually the sermon next week. This passage has caused a good deal of controversy over the centuries. It's led a lot of people to a lot of pain, I think, and misinterpretations of what this is and isn't saying. So what is the nature of the sickness? A few have suggested it refers exclusively to spiritual sickness. Most acknowledge that it is probably talking about physical sickness. What does it mean to anoint with oil? What kind of oil? Does it matter? What is the purpose of the oil? Some have argued that it's literally healing. They thought of it as medicine that you would put over somebody. It's just kind. Somebody has a headache, you give them Tylenol. Someone gets sick at that time, you rub some oil on them. Some have suggested that it was ritualistic. Some have suggested that it was merely symbolic. We don't know. Is, it, is that necessary every time? Every time we pray over someone who's sick, does it need to include oil? Was that limited, as some have argued, to the apostolic age? Is this an actual promise for healing if we follow this formula? If so, does that mean in this life for sure? Or is it more of a general promise that at least in the next... What is the prayer of faith? Whose prayer of faith? Is it the elders praying or the sick person praying that needs to have this faith? What if they don't get healed? Does that mean there's not enough faith? If so, how much faith is necessary? Should we confess our sins when we are sick because all sickness is tied to sin? You get the idea. These are the questions that a lot of people have spent a lot of time chasing down and taking strong stances on. I'm sure most of you have wondered about at least some of those things, if you've ever read this passage. But some of these questions are, are important, and some of the text explains pretty explicitly for us, and some not so much. But I'm afraid most of them, if we focus on them, cause us to miss the main point. And the main point is this. The main thing I want you to understand is that sickness and healing are in the hands of God. That's his main point. That's what James is getting at, is your sickness and your healing are in the hands of God. God's people, when we are acting faithfully, don't respond to sickness in the same way that those who are unbelievers do. Listen, (laughs) let me say that again, and then in a few different ways. God's people, when we're acting faithfully, don't respond to sickness in the same way that non-believers do. In our sickness especially, we can demonstrate that our hope is in Christ. We don't think in the same terms as non-Christians do. Our hope is not in the same thing as non-Christians are. Our goals are different from non-Christians. Where practical atheists only know how to look to the things of earth, and then maybe God is a last resort, James calls his readers to look to God alone as savior, raiser, forgiver, and healer. You want to be saved in your sickness? You want to be raised up in your forget, in your sickness? You want to be forgiven in your sickness? You want to be healed from your sickness? Say, yeah, Pastor Dave, that's that'd be great. Look only to God for that. Now know that he often uses means to accomplish these purposes. And here we see elders, oil, confessions, doctors, and medicine. But those things are merely ways that God brings healing, not true sources of healing. You with me, Grace? If you forget that, you're practically an atheist. In simplest t- terms, here's what James is getting at. James's antidote for practical atheism and sickness has two parts. First, whenever you fall ill, call your elders to pray, pray, call your elders to pray and anoint you. Confess your sins to one another and entrust your sickness to God. That's the first part. Call your elders to pray over you, call the church to pray over you, pray yourself. Confess your sins and trust your sickness to God. Second, James called his readers to have faith in God's promise to use those things to save, raise, forgive, and heal as he sees fit. You with me, Grace? That's James's point here. So with all of this, there are four specific things I'm going to wrap up with that we need to consider and apply. First, there's nothing special about an elder. (laughs) You know that. If you know us, you know that we're not all that impressive. There's nothing special about the prayers of an elder. James also called each sick individual to pray themselves. In other words, you pray as well for your sickness, and to call the others in the church to pray as well. There's a unique way that elders are meant to pray, but there's nothing special about the prayer of an elder. The fact that James calls on elders to pray for the sick is not meant to suggest that we have some extra measure of healing power in our prayers or some special words to say over you. I think this is a really important parallel. Come with me through this, Grace. And this, elders are like the bread of communion. And that while the bread is just bread, it was just bread before, it's just bread during the communion, God has chosen to use something or to do something not tied to the worthiness of the bread itself through the bread. That's what elders are like. In the same way, there's nothing uniquely meritorious in our prayers that would make god heal in a unique way or make us better conduits for god's healing grace it's simply that god has chosen to do that in some unique ways and so all of this is embedded in the the phrase in the name of the lord you see that at the end of verse 14 all of that is tied into the phrase in the name of the lord it's not in the name of the elder it's not in the power of the elder it's in the name of the lord We saw last week the seriousness of breaking an oath made in the name of the Lord. That's because God is holy, 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 and calling on his name is to invite the highest scrutiny possible. On the other hand, as we see here, the same power of God that brings condemnation to those who take his name in vain has great healing power to those who pray for it in his name. God is the power. Elders are at times merely the conduit through which God has chosen to make his power flow. Second, this is a big deal. Verse 15 is not a promise that every time an elder prays and anoints, that sickness will be healed. It sort of sounds like that, but that's not what it is. Look at 15. And the prayer of faith, which probably means that of the elder, will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Again, this is not a promise of universal immediate healing, but it is two very important things. It is a godly vehicle for the godly impulse to turn to God in our sickness, and it is a genuine means of grace. Let me say a, a brief word about each of those things. Calling on an elders to pray and anoint is a godly vehicle for a godly impulse in our sickness. In His kindness, God, through James, tells us what to do with our desire to honor Him when we become ill. Call on the elders to pray and anoint. In this passage, James was not making a promise of certain healing, but he was helping his readers know what godliness looks like, what not practical atheism looks like when they become sick. In other words, if you want to honor God in all situations and you become sick, you think, how do I honor God? How how do I honor you in this God? James is giving us the answer. And second, even though James was not promising certain healing in this life, that is not to suggest that the faithful prayers of godly elders are powerless. Indeed, they are a particular means of God's grace for all who are ill. God really does use them to save, to raise up, to forgive and to heal the sick in the same way that he uses quiet times to commune with his people and baptism to strengthen our faith and evangelism to encourage Christians. Not every quiet time grace leads to an overwhelming sense of worship. But it is right for us to say that the quiet times of the saints will revive our souls. You with me? Not every baptism casts out all doubt in those who witness it or take part in it, but it is right to say that baptism strengthens the faith of God's people. Not every evangelistic encounter is positive, but it is right to say that it is a means of God's encouraging grace. And not every faithful prayer Elder prayer for the sick results in immediate physical healing, but it is right to say that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Third, at the end of verse 15, it is not a promise that elder prayers have the power to impart forgiveness. There's a big part of church and church history that suggests that it does, but that's not what James is getting at. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The statement is an acknowledgement that the kind of heart This is really important. The kind of heart that looks first to God in sickness and then to his appointed means of grace is the kind of heart that has genuine faith of Jesus. And the kind of heart that has genuine faith in Jesus is certainly one to which 1 John one nine applies. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, the prayers of others, elders or anyone else, does they do not effectively bring about the forgiveness of sins. But the whole exchange, the whole act of going to God in faith according to his word, rightly engaged in is an expression of the kind of faith through which God saves sinners. Fourth and last, there's a grace connection, a divine connection between confession of sin the prayers of saints, and physical healing. So look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a connection. The Bible is explicit that not all sickness is the result of some particular sin in the person who's sick. It's explicit about that. But the Bible is also explicit that some sickness is. James's logic in verse 16 then seems to be have three parts to it. If we are to be freed from sin-induced sickness. It will include confession of sins and repentance. If, if you are sick in some way that's tied to your sins as, as a, 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 a sharpening, sanctifying, maybe even disciplining work of God, if you're, if you're sick in some ways because of your sin, it will, in, healing from it will include confession and repentance. Second, Even when our sickness is not sin-induced, and I'm going to talk more about this for a second, it is a reminder that we still need righteousness, that our souls still bear sickness. And third, since confession and repentance are gifts from God, we ought to pray for one another that God would grant them, especially when we're sick. So the principle here is that sickness is sort of like hunger. Okay, You may have sinned in some way that makes you hungry. Maybe you blew all your money at the race track or or on fly fishing equipment or on tickets to the game or something like that. Maybe you blew all your money on something sinfully and now you don't have any money to buy food and that's why you're hungry. Sometimes people are hungry because they've sinned in some way that deprived them of food. Maybe some of you have experienced that. But God, the bigger picture is that God gives physical hunger, whatever happened to bring it about, even just the normal cycle of things. God gives physical hunger to teach us to long for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Why do you get hungry? It's to remind you that you were made for righteousness. Okay? So sometimes that hunger comes from sin, sometimes it doesn't, but every time it's meant to give you a longing for righteousness. And so you become hungry and you pray. Your your stomach growls You pray for holiness. God, just as I long for food, knowing that my body needs it to survive right now, so too and even more, I'm reminded to long for righteousness as my soul needs that to survive. That's that's what fasting is for, by the way. Hunger may or may not result from some type of personal act of unrighteousness, but every time it is a reminder of the righteousness we're made for. Okay, in the same way, and I'm almost done, Not every time we're sick is it a direct result of some particular sin in our lives. But every physical sickness is every time a reminder of a measure of sickness that still lingers in our soul. We're forgiven and freed, and we're promised that one day we will be entirely sanctified, but we still lack. We still lack. And so we pray and invite others to join us to pray. God, I long for you to heal my body right now. But I'm thankful that at this moment of sickness, I'm reminded that my greater need, one you've already met in a certain sense in Christ, and are continually meeting in Jesus, is the healing that my soul needs. It's still tainted by sin. It's forgiven, but it's still impacted by sin. I'm reminded of my greater need in the sickness, one you've already met and are continually meeting in Jesus, which is for the healing of my soul. Drive out God. feel this now in my sniffles and my finger thing, nail thing, drive out every sinful desire that I have. Forgive every sin in Jesus. Even if this illness takes my life, may my soul fully and forever be sanctified by grace through faith. That's what sickness is for. That's what James is saying. That's what it looks like to have the sniffles for the glory of God. And James's true promise here is that the kind of prayer, that this is the kind of prayer that pleases God, and in that way, it always works, every time. It is for that reason that he ended this verse saying, which is next week's sermon, the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. As an example, he offers Elijah, Elijah's prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Check this story out in your Bibles later. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth due to the prayers of one man like us. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. When God's people seek God's will in the ways God has prescribed, there is power. There, There is great power as it is working. So living in suffering, cheerfulness and sickness, in light of this reality, is the opposite of practical atheism and the exact kind of heart that glorifies God. So here's my conclusion. Is anyone suffering right now, Grace? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone sick? In any of those situations, acknowledge God's sovereignty over them and do so mainly through prayer. The main way you acknowledge God's sovereignty over them is in prayer. Invite others to join you in prayer. It takes humility sometimes, but, but this is what you're called to, that you may honor God in, in these things, in your prayers, and therein grow in the assurance of your salvation and all of this. All of this, last couple of sentences, in all of it, remember the gospel. Remember the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember that none of us have done this perfectly. You probably don't have to think back too far to to remember that. Remember that in this life, none of us ever will. You won't. You, You do not have God's favor because you do this perfectly. Remember that the consequences of this, though, are as serious and as steep as they get consequences of this type of rebellion is death, but remember that these things are also the reason we need a Savior. Remember that God has given us the Savior we need in Jesus Christ. Remember that He is ours. He is our Savior, not by our works, not by obeying any of this perfectly, but by faith alone. And remember that the gospel is the good news that God has already provided for you and is already working in you all that he requires of you. That's good news indeed.